All right, everybody, can you hear me? Is it, uh, yeah. My name is Ben Ware. I'm the transportation reporter for the Austin American Statesman. And on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm happy to welcome you to the seventh annual Texas Tribune Festival and to our panel, which is called Tyranny of the Commute, which carries the subtitle, Getting from Home to Work and Back in Our Biggest Cities is Harder Than It Needs to Be. Here's How to Make It Easier. So here's how to make it easier. No pressure at all on the panel. Uh, this panel is supported by Chariot. Uh, though sponsors and donors underwrite the event, they play no role in determining the event's content. The panelists are the line of questioning. So here's our panel for this session, and I'll start down at the far end. That's John Michael Cortez. He's currently a special assistant to Austin Mayor Steve Adler and he was formerly manager of community involvement for Capital Metro, our transit agency here, where he was deeply involved in something called the Project Connect process that led to a 2004 light rail plan that got on the ballot and did not pass. But also, after he went to the mayor's office, John Michael was a key player in the development of Austin's 2016 $720 million mobility bond, which did pass. Uh, Second from the left, uh, Councilmember Philip Kingston. He was first elected to the Dallas City Council in 2013, representing District 14, and was re-elected earlier this year. His district covers parts of downtown, the Central Expressway area, and part of East Dallas. And he didn't know this until right now, but my brother and sister-in-law live in the Hollywood Heights area and are his constituents. Hopefully they voted for him. Um, I, I, I talked to him earlier, I should have asked. Uh, in the middle there is Beth Van Dyne. She's uh, the regional administrator of the Federal Housing and Urban Development Department, an appointment from the Trump administration that took place in May. Before that, she served on the Irving City Council for uh, about a decade, including as mayor from 2011 until May. So I'll be talking with the panel, asking them questions for about 40 minutes, and then we'll take 15 to 20 minutes of questions from you. Uh, I've been asked to ask you to please silence your phones, and for those of you who want to tweet, the hashtag is hashtag TribFest17, the numeral 17. So back to that subtitle, getting from home to work and back in our biggest cities is harder than it needs to be. Here's how to make it easier. Well, it's certainly harder than it used to be. Whether it's harder than it needs to be is, of course, a, an open question. Um, in cities like Austin and Dallas and others that are, are growing in population, uh, is it something that is, is it's fixable? So I'll play along. An open question for any of the four of you. How would you make commuting easier in Texas cities? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I, I, I have some Work thoughts. Um, I have some thoughts. Um, my name is Celia Israel. I'm on the transportation committee. Did I fail to introduce you? Yeah. We're, I just, we're going to go, we're gonna go back. <laughs> ben just assumed everybody knows Celia. Of course. She's a Democrat from Austin, and she was elected in a 2014 special <laughs> election and then reelected twice since then. And she serves on the House Transportation Committee. And I'm so sorry. That's okay. <laughs> one of my, one of my, I've had a, a couple of thoughts, and those of you who follow my trajectory know I have lots of thoughts on transportation. I'm, I really love the topic, and I think Texas isn't, continues to be in a transportation crisis despite um, the uh, 
the, the, the money that has been dedicated of late. But we, we had, um, Kirk Watson and I passed a bill that would have been permissive to allow state employees to telecommute, as an example. Didn't cost any money. That bill was vetoed by the governor. Um, we have uh, another bill which is to allow buses on the shoulders to go at a low rate of speed and let's call it a pilot program and see if that can work as an extra lane of space that could have worked uh, and let's just try it in Central Texas. That bill passed overwhelmingly in the House and died in the Senate. Um, Texas is one of 23 states that says its highway fund is just a highway fund and cannot be used for transit. I think that the, our cities and the counties and state could work co more cooperatively to say bang for your buck and let's pull down some more federal dollars for some creative uh, ideas and initiatives. I guess I'll jump in. Uh, you know, the it, panel is the tyranny of the commute and I always kind of try to put that into perspective. You know, I, for me, uh, transportation is one of the most exciting and frustrating and complex urban problems. And we tend to focus on the commute because those of us who have to endure commutes know it's the most frustrating part of, of uh, the whole experience. But to put it in perspective, if you look at all the trips taken by any type of mode of travel for all the reasons by everybody, commuting makes up less than 20% of all those trips. You know, you just think about your own experience. You know, you, you go to lunch, you go to the grocery store, you go to a friend's house, you go to the airport, and you commute every day, and it's not really a choice, but it really makes up a very small fraction of travel behavior. And for me, commuting, while it's the most, uh, uh, obviously it's the thing that people talk about the most and uh, the biggest problem, it really is relative to the other transportation problems that we have in growing cities, it's really the easiest one. We know what to do there. It's actually a pretty easy one to fix. We just have yet to find the will to actually do the things we know work. Uh, the quickest and easiest thing we can do to ease everybody's commute is to start to invest in what's called transportation demand management. Really, commuting is a problem of space, and that really is the core problem in a city. We just, we just don't have a lot of space, and so our right-of-ways are constrained. And with the challenge with rush hour, the challenge with congestion, you have a lot of people trying to occupy the same space at the same time. What we have to do is try to shift that demand so that people are either telecommuting, if they have the ability to do that, maybe flexing uh, their travel times, coming in early, coming in late, taking some sort of transportation alternative like a bus or a bike or, or carpooling or chariot. I'll give a shout out to the sponsor. Uh, <laughs> who doesn't control any of the Who doesn't content. control any of the content, although they are here in Austin and they're great. Um, you know, uh, our friends at TTI who we, we were with earlier, um, I believe I, I read something they did uh, one time looking at IH35, which anybody here from Austin know it's a big problem. If we were just to shift something like 20% uh, of the travel there, either get people to do to take a bus, work from home, whatever, we would have free flowing traffic. And really what that comes down to, if one day out of five, the five working days, somebody just did something different, everybody did one thing differently, then we would have free flowing traffic. And so it really is pretty easy. We just have to have the will to do it. But people aren't choosing to do that. How do you make them choose to do that? Or how do you encourage them? Well, first, there you got to allow it, right? Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, if, I think there, there should be um, an incentive to ride the bus. The incentive would be 
um, the bus gets to go in the in a bus on shoulders example. Even if the if you're in stop and go traffic and the bus passes you by at 35 miles an hour, there's something psychological about oh the bus is passing me by. Um, we have managed lanes which are coming into um, fruition at some at some point, oh, some weeks soon, soon. soon. Uh, <laughs> creeping along here in Austin. But those are are that's going to be the first time in Central Texas anyway where you're sitting in traffic and the bus is going to go is going to zoom by. So um, we can we can promote those, and I, I've been talking a lot about you know affordability and and transportation. Of course, are hand in hand, and as as our region, my district is high growth. Um, wherever we have a, a toll facility, that's also a toll road is also an asset for a, um, a high capacity bus, a better bus, the best bus. So when I talk about transit, I'm not saying rail all the time. But at, at some juncture, if there's a park and ride, why does that park and ride just have to be a concrete structure that has nothing else in it? Why can't the park and ride have a daycare center or a dry cleaner so that that parent who gets to the destination picks up their kid, gets their dry cleaning, goes home and starts their evening with their family? That's when they'll say, yeah, I can do that. Um, so we can be creative and we can be thoughtful and, and my, my mantra is the state should be a partner in those um, initiatives. I think those are all fantastic ideas um, and I, but I think that they are all short-term ideas um, and I think the solution actually depends a lot more on Beth and her uh, agency than it does on a transportation approach. Um, Long-term, the only way to allow people to have reasonably decent lives moving from home to work is to locate their homes close to their work. Um, and no matter what Celia is able to do in Pflugerville, it is today and will continue to be more than 30 minutes from downtown Austin, mm -hmm. um, in, unless we invent teleportation, right? So there's, the, there's this thing called the Marchetti constant that says humans, over time, on average, will never commute more than an hour a day. Um, we all have people who do that more than an hour a day, but long term, on average. So what we've seen in Dallas, for instance, is that we've, we have dislocated jobs away from the southern sector of our city, which is historically the poorer, more minority section of the city. And we tried to correct it by building bigger and bigger highways to be able to move people from southern Dallas to, for instance, State Farm located in Plano up 75. So we enlarged 75. Uh, we put billions of dollars into it. And initially, when it was finished, that commute was about 35 minutes. And today, it's about an hour and a half. And so those people who live in the southern <laughs> sector of Dallas who were going to work at State Farm this regional model where what's good for Plano is good for Dallas? Uh-uh. No, it isn't. And they aren't working at State Farm anymore. And guess what else they aren't doing? They aren't living in southern Dallas anymore. So Dallas has had growth. Um, between 2000 and 2010, we had very anemic growth, uh, about 9,000 net residents. And during that period of time, we lost tens of thousands of people from the southern sector who went to greener pastures. And so if there's not, if we can't figure out how to co-locate housing near jobs, and in the southern sector, what that means is bringing the jobs to the housing. 
around populations, around employment centers, it means bringing the housing to the jobs, and it's got to be housing that is affordable to the workers who work in those jobs. I mean, you bring up you bring up a really good point, um, and it's a tough it's it's a tough nut because you have the housing in South Irving, I mean South Dallas, and then what you saw is the jobs moved away. Mm-hmm. So do you move the jobs to the houses, or do you move the houses to the jobs? Because if you move that job, all of a sudden everybody that lives there, okay, they're stuck. They're either having to drive 45 minutes to an hour, or they're looking for a new job. Um, the tele the teleworking is interesting. I started a position now with the federal government, and we have up to three days a week teleworking. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, it is really very difficult to have a staff mm-hmm. where you have no idea who's going to be there and when. Mm-hmm. It's a very difficult team to pull together when you don't know where they are. Um, and I'll tell you, it's also very difficult to pay for office space, because typically what we do is we pay for it by a head basis. So I can't tell you how much money we're spending on a square footage, people that aren't in their office three days a week. So that, it, it sounds like it's an easy fit. It's a lot more difficult than it sounds. Coming from a, a, a city, top 15 in, in Texas, but top 100 in the country, we were actually penalized in Irving because we put money into um, public transportation. So the city of Irving, Dallas, Plano, and some others actually added the two cents that they get from state funds, two cents of sales tax, a full one penny went into our dark transportation. Mm-hmm. Well, area cities that were benefiting off us having DART and that were benefiting off of us bringing people in started using their one cent of sales tax to incentivize businesses to come to their cities. So it actually made it a lot more difficult. You're taking a risk as a city getting into the transportation game because other cities that don't feel the need to have to do that because you're providing that backbone for them get to feed off on that. And people are like, wait, what are you talking about, right? And I remember sitting down with your mayor, Mayor Rawlings, and he didn't understand what we were talking about until the, the um, conversation came up about where you were going to build the new stadium. And when you see other cities, Frisco, um, Arlington, that don't put money into their public transportation systems, being able to use that then to even get businesses out of your city. It's not like we're just bringing them all from California or from New York or Chicago across the world, but from the Metroplex. That makes it very difficult. Cities need to be able to have the incentives to do that because it makes sense from a regional level. But we also shouldn't be um, penalized for it. Well, let's talk about the sales tax and, and state funding. Uh, let's talk about money. Uh, Dallas, of course, got into the uh, mass transit game way before Austin did and, 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 and got ahead of, of Houston as well. So you have a lot of light rail uh, going in various directions in Dallas. Uh, but down here in Austin, you know, to really try to do some sort of massive plan is going to take one billion to start and several billion to do eventually. But we've got a sales tax that is capped out for for, for uh, Capital Metro at one percent, and doesn't generate throw off any you know great deal of money that would allow them to to do that. And we have a state constitution that, as as as, as Representative Israel said, constitutionally restricts TxDOT from spending all but a small amount of its money on uh, on anything other than roads. So how do you, how does a city like Austin or San Antonio or others that have not done this already, how do they find the money for these big ticket uh, transit items? 
Well, I'll, I'll give a shout out to Houston, um, which um, isn't is known to be um, uh, a city that thinks ahead or plans stuff. But they, um, they have, um, I, I talk about this project frequently, but the Galleria area, um, who, want, who doesn't want to go to Needless Markup and buy stuff, <laughs> um, they have a, a, it's about a three mile stretch that's a dedicated lane off of 610 for a bus only um, that drops them right down um, into the middle of the Galleria area. The bus is on its own lane. It's two lanes each direction. Um, that was funded with property values that grew over time. And they started, you know, 10 years back in order to capture that. It, in, it involves planning. It involves time. Um, it involves leadership to say, we're going to dedicate that money because it, at some point in the future, this is our vision, and this is how we're going to pay for it. And it doesn't have to pay for all of it, but if it pays for a significant chunk, and you have another partner that's either the city or the county or your transit authority or the state, you, you have more options because you've got some, you've got some money there to, to work with, and that money has been put aside for that very purpose. We're an urban state, and we haven't stepped up to the plate to acknowledge that. Well, and Houston is the only major city in the United States with rising transit usage, and it has nothing to do with these big ticket items. It has to do with improving their bus service. What they did was is they made a, a promise to their citizens, and they said, we are going to give you a service level guarantee. Your bus commute is going to be X percent. I think it's 1.5 or 1.75 times your car commute as, as we measure that. And then they rationalize their bus service to where it serves the city in a way that actually gets workers to jobs rather than trying to spread the peanut butter all over the place where it gets too thin in areas that are more transit dependent. And we're, we're trying to copy them in Dallas, quite frankly. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, a, that's hope, I think, because I think people get the idea that you can't improve this unless you spend billions and billions of dollars, and it's simply not true. You have to provide people service that they can actually use. I think that there is a little bit of classism about buses. I think those of us who are not transit dependent need to uh, make sure that we don't have an Im implicit bias against people who ride the bus. Um, so I think, but I think there are ways to improve that without the, the sort of billions of dollars. Absolutely right. Yeah, and we're, we're embarking upon the same thing here in Austin and have been trying for the last several years. And we're already seeing great success uh, with uh, the frequent service network investments that have been made thus far. Uh, yes, uh, transit ridership uh, overall has been down, but it's been down across the country, uh, Houston being one of the outliers. Uh, but if you look at what's actually happening, uh, not at a system-wide level, but at spe in, uh, for specific services, specific routes where more investment has been made, we're actually seeing dramatic ridership gains. And so when we, when we talk about uh, things like system ridership or, or, or mode share, we, we tend to talk about it uh, at a regional level, which is important. But it doesn't serve the whole region. You have to actually look at how is it performing where, you're at, where it's actually at. Mm -hmm. uh, and the challenge we have here in Austin is that we're somewhat constrained with where we can actually provide service. Uh, but where service is being provided and where infrastructure is being built, People are choosing, uh, Ben, you mentioned people aren't choosing. Actually, people are choosing uh, to take alternative modes of travel, to shift their, their behavior 
when they actually have the option. People in Pflugerville don't have a lot of options. People in Buda and Kyle don't really have a lot of options. People in Central Austin have quite a few options. People in Leander now have some options, and they're choosing to do th things differently. Mm -hmm. We have to provide more types of choices that make sense for people that actually solve their needs in more places. Because we know it works, and when we put money into it and do it right, people will use it. But the part of the problem is, is that TxDOT's working against us. I mean, the way that our cities got this way is TxDOT plowing billions of dollars into lane capacity, um, which extends the reach using that Marchetti constant again. If you can live in Frisco and get into downtown Dallas in 30 minutes, you're going to do it because the cheap housing is out there. We're subsidizing housing developers, and not the affordable housing kind. Um, we, we actually have a situation where a couple of mayors of Dallas profited greatly during their time in office off of uh, housing developments in the, in the suburbs, which is kind of interesting. And now we have, in the last few sessions, these sequestered amounts of money from the state budget that can only be spent on highways. Well, that's death for cities. That, that, that hollows out our cities, um, and putting more lane miles in is a recipe for, for failure, really. And we, we've got 50 years of data to prove it. What we have, though, is a leadership both on TxDOT and in the governor's mansion who see things totally differently. And you know, the governor's saying, you're going to spend, TxDOT, please go spend this newly sequestered money on the 10 biggest choke points in, uh, in the state, but without using any alternative form of transportation. It, it's basically a dagger at the heart of the city, um, because that's not where his voters are. I think that's one way of looking at it. Um, but it's, it's not all about the cities. And not everybody wants to live in a city. I have two kids. I'm from New York. I didn't want to live in a city. I wanted to live. I like the suburbs. Okay, I mean that may not be the popular thing to say, but I like having greenery around me and not living around all concrete. And a lot of people still want that. And what ends up happening is cities spend a lot of money on infrastructure. And spending a lot of money means that the people that live there end up having to pay a lot of money. And so they prefer to go out. And it might be worth the 45-minute commute to go out. But the reason why people, they, they spend a lot of money on lanes, have we not seen how many people are actually driving? I mean, we are, we are responsive to demand. And the fact is, is that we spent over a billion dollars in Irving already on DART, and I pass cars that are empty all the time. Not empty cars, but empty carts on, on, on DART. We've built it. They haven't come. Do you know what they do come to? The lanes. The more lanes that we, we build, the, the faster they get filled up, and the more people can go out. Now, granted, they're going out to Plano, and they're going out to Frisco, they're going out to McKinney, they're going further north. It's a sprawl. But it hasn't failed our state. If you look at the population increase, if you look at the economic development of Texas, and you see how we're competing with other cities of our size around the country, that sprawl has been a good thing for Texas. And yes, nobody wants to see more lanes, except if it's by your house, and it means you're going to cut your commute by half. Now, what we found is that commute being cut means more people are moving out, and more people are moving to the state. But I don't know that it's failed. And we can look at what the alternative choices are. Dart. The city of Irving last year spent over $72 million, $74 million on that. 
think about what that money could have gone to. And the fact is, is that when you look at our, our ridership, it does not match the price tag. So people have that alternative, but we haven't made it easy for them either. You know, when people get off at a dart stop, then what do they do? It's not like in New York or in D.C. where they're, you know, a couple blocks away where they need to go. You kind of drop them off in the middle of nowhere, depending on where they need to go. But again, people are going to follow jobs, and jobs are the unknown quantity. We can plan, but if you get a company that comes in like um, Toyota, that's going to change the landscape of Plano. Now, if Toyota had decided to build in South Dallas, I mean, that would have been phenomenal for the economic development in that corridor, in that, that area of the city, but, but they didn't, and that's the wild card. You can't control the private sector. But what the private sector is going to look at a lot of times is what you're charging them in taxes, and that's how much you're putting into the infrastructure. Las Colinas was built as a business community. Las Colinas created an entity called DCURS, Dallas County Utilization and Reclamation District where people who live there, people who have businesses there, are paying nearly twice as much in taxes to pay for the infrastructure around it. It does not take too long for them to go, you know what, if I'm across the street, I'm paying half as much in taxes. So it's not an easy solution, and when we just, you just can't keep throwing money at it and expecting that not to have a domino effect about where business is located. Let me, let me, let me take a, a little left turn here. How do emerging technologies particularly electric-powered vehicles, which are not using hydrocarbons, or at least not to the degree, because that can be, the electricity can be generated by wind and solar uh, along with hydrocarbons. How does that change this whole debate about building lanes versus building transit? In other words, if, if the use of cars becomes less of an environmental detriment, does that take away part of the argument for not building lanes? Well, first, let me reject the premise of your question. You know, it's not, it's not building lanes versus building transit. Um, you know, we need everything, right? Especially in a city like Dallas, especially in a city like Austin that are growing and but, thriving. But we can't pay for everything. We can, if we have the will to do it. Uh, and there are ways that you can increase capacity on, on regional highways and benefit transit at the same time. We're doing it here. Uh, with our express lanes, our managed lane concept, with dynamic tolling. Uh, you know, people look at it as a toll road. I see it as a transit project. Because uh, when we're using variable prices to, or variable pricing to uh, ensure reliable travel times, that's going to benefit the transit that's operating in those lanes. To me, those are transit projects that also happen to benefit and are paid for by drivers. So I, I think that it's not an either or, um, and we shouldn't make it an either or. Uh, we need everything. We need more of every type of infrastructure because there is no silver bullet to this problem. There is no panacea. You know, obviously in the long term, uh, reforms in how we grow and how we, uh, in our land use, uh, is, is, the, is the ultimate solution. But it's going to take generations. You know, human beings perfected the art of building cities over about 5,000 years. And we spent the last 100 years screwing it up. Uh, it's going to take generations for us to fix that. Uh, and what we can do, though, is build the infrastructure to support the way that we're going to settle our cities and our suburban areas in the future. That's what we need to do. In the short term, we need to, to, to change policies and provide incentives. But we need everything. It shouldn't be an either or. It shouldn't be a versus. Uh, back, to my, back to a point that I was making earlier. I think it kind of uh, applies here. My, my district is suburban sprawl. That's all it is. Um, a big chunk of it is in the city of Austin, but it's just, it's rooftops. And there's rooftops that are going out into 
um, the <coughs> eastern part of the county. Uh, these families have highways that they can use at a certain point, but as they get closer to downtown Austin, those highways become congested. The highways that they can use are toll facilities. And that's a burden on them. They, they move farther out. Their transportation costs are now higher. And uh, that eight bucks a day, or whatever that figure is, um, that, that family budget is having to absorb that. And that becomes bigger over time. And my, I don't think we can t continue to do what we've done and expect that it's going to get better. In Houston, we built over 25 lanes on the Katy Freeway. And every time we expanded, they fill up, and they fill up, and they fill up. That's, that's not sane to me. So all I'm suggesting is, as, as we're planning highways, um, we, can, we can plan assets and think smarter about how we're growing and how we're building that are, that are family friendly. So that, that park and ride is a multi-use facility. It's not just a dead parking lot. Um, so that we're thinking about um, driverless vehicles that aren't just single car, single one person going from downtown Austin to Pflugerville. How about microtransit that is driverless, that is um, electric, that is uh, that I use an app and it says if, if you wait 10 minutes, there's going to be a microtransit here with six other people who need to go to Pflugerville. Microtransit, you mean like chariot? No. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're really you getting their no money's worth today. It, the, <laughs> it, it's, uh, you know, these are all great ideas, but we're operating now in an environment that we have not seen for generations. And, and, and it is the dangerous environment of affordability. And, and our cities are, are wonderful. They are economic engines, but they are also increasingly unaffordable. So I, I'm, I'm just cautioning us to, keep, to bear in mind those working men and women of Texas who are struggling to make, end meet, make ends meet. And, and all they see is, is us um, throwing, um, continuing to do what we've done and expect a different outcome. But this is a great fallacy, right? We're talking about how people are having to pay more money on transit if they live outside. But what we're talking about is spending more and more billions of dollars on these alternative. Who's paying for that? Well, I mean, my, we, start, we start throwing these things out there thinking, well, just general taxpayers, but not these people. Everybody has to end up paying for that when we spend billions and billions of dollars. And right now, people have a choice. If you want to live in the inside of the city, you can live in the inside of the city. Only if you and can if afford you, it. Right. right. But, but, but what she's saying is you can't afford to live in the suburbs either because you've got to pay all that money coming in. Yeah. But people have a choice. You start paying billions and billions of dollars in taxpayers, everybody has to pay for that, and you lose your choice. I'm not suggesting that it's a billion-dollar answer. But if I'm building a, yeah. there's, there's, toll roads, there's toll roads already built out to yeah. Maynard, for example, in my district. But there's, there's, no, there's, no, um, there's, no, there's not enough of a transit incentive for that person who says, on Thursdays, I can take the bus. Um, so there's no incentive for that person. And, and, and the state, I think, deserves uh, some blame here and not stepping up to the plate so that the toll road that we built 15 years ago isn't the same toll road asset that we should be building now. We should be getting smarter about how we're building it. And all I'm suggesting is that 
for a very small amount of money as you're building that infrastructure asset. If you're, if you're being smarter about land use and uh, structures that you might be building or value, future value that you might be capturing, it, it doesn't have to be a billion dollar uh, solution. It could be a, a, a multi-million dollar solution to a, a park and ride that is smarter, for example. And I have nothing to base it on. That's just dreams that I have at night about smarter park and rides. Well, I so. mean, I, I, <laughs> Beth, I actually think your agency has recognized the interconnection between these two problems. Um, for years and years and years, American cities, Dallas is the worst offender, spent all the federal housing dollars we had in the poorest parts of town um, on the general principle that investment in that part of town was good for the, that part of town. No, it turns out it's not. If what you're also doing is incentivizing the people who live there to drive an hour and a half every day, it's bad for them. Yes, environmental protection is an important thing, but if we cut our mobile source emissions in Dallas in half, we would still be a non-attainment area because of power generation outside our city and because of drilling outside of our city, which we don't do either thing. So that's good, but also commuters who commute more than an hour a day tend to be really fat. It's bad for people to commute. And the stakes have gotten way higher, way higher. So assume everything goes electric and you have improved air quality. Did the citizens of Houston have a rain problem or did they have an impermeable cover problem? Definitely probably a rain a, problem. Probably a, li probably a little of both. But seriously, that the, the flooding in Houston has now had 300-year flood events in 15 years. It's not the rain, it's the concrete. And so to say that we're going to have all these smart ideas, these are wonderful short-term ideas. Over the long term, the solution is density. The solution is we're going to have to stop incentivizing low-density development and just let the market work its course. If we just took the incentives out to sprawl, I think we would see massive density. But that, that's tough in Austin. I, I have a friend that lives out in Hutto along the 130, and he has a 2,500-square-foot house he bought you know, recently, and that's he's paying like $100 a square foot. Mm -hmm. If he bought that same house in central Austin, it'd be $300 a square foot. So mm -hmm. maybe he can afford a little bit more mm -hmm. on transportation. You know, because he can pay some tolls. We have examples. Of, but I mean, can you build affordable housing that a family can live in? You know, as opposed to a one-bedroom yes. apartment. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yes, you know, you that can. they can afford. Yes, yes. To live you in. can. But you can. But part of the solution is going to be having the corporations that employ these people realize and recognize <laughs> that it's in their best interest to be able to have people that work for their company live close by. And we should and give those that, corporations money to make that happen. Or we can actually you know, engage in conversations with these corporations and say, look, right now in Frisco, for example, and I keep talking about North Texas, and I apologize. I know that we're in Austin. I was just in <laughs> Houston yesterday. I've been all around the state the last couple of months. But, but we, ha we have a great, a great city. They have very little affordable housing there. And what they're finding out is they have all these brand new restaurants that have opened, but trying to get waiters to come in is really tough because to get there is miserable. It's an hour drive, it's an hour commute, and they don't make that much. So how, you know, is it in the best interest of Chili's not to recognize that, or you know, of a hospital not to recognize that, that the people, the orderlies and the nurses that you have need to be able to live close by? But that, I think, is a private sector solution. It's not necessarily a public sector issue. To your, to your point about 
our promise zones and in some of the areas that, that HUD is working on. Right now, what we've looked at is we've said we've poured money into areas of town that are, quote, undesirable. Well, why are they undesirable? Why don't people want to live in certain areas of town? And it's typically because they're lacking access. Access to healthcare, access to schools, access to jobs, access to retail. So what can we do to actually help that? Is it building a clinic in those areas? Is it incentivizing using city, state, whatever um, um, uh, dollars to get businesses and jobs down there? Is it providing training? All of those things can happen, but as a previous mayor and as a lo local official, you can't just give up on one area of your town. As we are growing, we have to figure out how to make those areas desirable, workable solutions that don't cost our taxpayers you know, a, a, a burden that they can't, they can't handle, but also not giving up on them and thinking that putting money into an area of town that has historically not wanted people to live there, does that make sense? And we're, you know, Irving, Dallas, don't have a whole lot of places to grow. So we have to take advantage of where people are living. And a lot of people want to stay there. They don't want to move to North Dallas. They want to be able to stay where they have roots, where their grandparents live, where their babysitter lives, where they've known people and they trust the mechanic down the street. They don't want to move. And I think we really need to think about, again, it's, it's, it's about public choice and not giving them such a high tax burden that they feel like they're going to be kicked out of that area. I, just, I, I don't want to give up on any part of Dallas. I want to give up on Frisco. <laughs> ben, I don't, I don't know that we actually, uh, that we actually addressed your question about technology. You know, uh, I'll, just, I'll just say for my part, um, I'm really excited about the, the future of autonomous vehicles. I'm really excited about uh, you know, microtransit. I'm really excited about uh, transportation network companies. Uh, they're all great, um, but I am no, uh, call, color me skeptical. I, I think that they're not really going to solve the fundamental problem of a lot of people trying to get to the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. We have physical limitations. Just because somebody's not actually having to drive the vehicle, the vehicle is still there. And, and ultimately, we're still going to need to figure out this problem. How do we move as many people as we can within the limited space that we have. And no amount of technology is going to beat the simple principle that the easiest way to do it is put all those people in the same vehicle traveling in the same direction in its own guideway. No amount of uh, you know, technology is going to overcome that, 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 that fact. And so I'm, I'm really excited about the uh, technology. I think it's going to make things better. I think it's going to make things more responsive. I think it's going to provide us with many more options. You know, it used to be that if I wanted to, to get to work or get to school, I had, you know, two options. I could drive or I could take the bus. Now I have like 10 options, right? I can take a, I can take a ride Austin. I can take a cab. I can, I can ride a bike. I can do a number of different things, and that's better. But if we're going back to the, the core of this panel, it, it's still not going to solve that fundamental issue of space. To do that, we have to do a lot more, uh, uh, we have to do a, more, a lot better planning of where we put things, right? We, we, we focus on the wrong problem. The problem isn't mobility, the problem is access, right? So the problem is how do I get to the place I need to get to? How do I get the things I need to get? Now, because we put things so far apart, it becomes a mobility problem. But the fundamental core of it is it's an access problem. We haven't put things in the right place. And I think that's what we've been talking around for the, for the last 15 minutes. Well, 
Uh, we'd like to take some questions from the audience, and so naturally they're on the back row. The first. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get we'll get to both of you. Go ahead. So, like many Texans. Um, okay. I've lived in multiple cities, Dallas, Houston, and Austin, and I would say that not all traffic is created equal. <laughs> and you look at a city like Austin, and in particular Interstate 35, which is, which is a national artery of transit. What is being done to, whether it's through sticks or carrots, so to speak, to kind of divert some of the 18-wheeler traffic off of a, of a thoroughfare like Interstate 35? Because if you fly over from, say, you know, Riverside Drive to, uh, you know, 35th Street, which is a big bottleneck, you can't count how many 18-wheelers there are in that little stretch there. And so if there was a way to divert and bypass some of that traffic. Like a big bankrupt toll road? <laughs> <laughs> it's not bankrupt anymore. But, yeah. it's but, but there, there, there's an opportunity there well, to, the, to, to offer is, a carrot to yeah. the trucking industry. <laughs> We've tried that, and there's been some impact. But the reality is a significant portion of those trucks are actually bound for Austin. They're not going to go all the way around when they actually need to get to the places in Austin. Oh, sure. Yeah, and, and but, the, 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 and you've seen the numbers, uh, Zoe, what well, do you have it, to say about that? You're speaking to, to a, um, uh, one of my legislative initiatives, which was to uh, incentivize trucks to go around Austin, knowing that there still needed to be trucks who were going to take the washers and dryers to the Sears at Hancock Center. Mm -hmm. um, and there's been, there was two pilot programs and so the session before last, we dedicated, I think it was about $11 million. And that was the cost to offset uh, for, the, for, the, for the bonding companies to say, okay, for the next, I think it was nine months, the truck is going to pay the same as a, as a car. So what was a $54 toll became a $9 toll. And this is, of course, for the, you know, the, over 50 miles. <clears throat> for the family-owned trucking firm that has eight vehicles and that, those deal. costs add up, knowing that they weren't going to use it all the time. We, uh, we passed that initiative, and then because we live in two-year budget cycles, that $11 million uh, was cut from the budget this past time. So we weren't, we weren't allowed the opportunity to at least try to nudge it a little bit. Does anybody remember the Texas Tea? <coughs> Rick Perry had tried this idea. He wanted to do exactly that. And what happened was cities formed this text 21 and they fought it. Because here's the problem. When trucks go through, they go through the major cities and all of their, their property values and their sales tax increases by having all the trucks. So I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna argue that cities have failed the last 100 years. I would say more people live in cities now than at any other time. And we, do we need to concentrate more things in cities? Or can you easily say that when everybody wants to go to the same place at the same time, that's what causes traffic? If we, if we extended it out and not everybody was going to the same place at the same time or wanted to live all in the core of the city, you wouldn't have as much traffic. But when we, I mean, but your point is the cities don't want to give that up. They don't want to give up the sales tax. They don't want to give up economic development. They don't want to give up their, their residents. So it would have worked. You're right. I mean, how many times do you get stuck in rush hour traffic and you're like, why do we have so many 18 wheelers on here? I mean, do they have to get home I mean, this one hour? Can we just not make a law that they don't have to, you know, go on, on the road between like 4.30 and 6.30? Yeah. What? Some of them are going to Canada. Mm -hmm. 
But but you could, but you could. But what ended up happening is cities fought it because they wanted to have that that market coming to their city. And that's where you get, you know, there has to be some kind of a compromise. It's a great idea. I thought it was a great idea 12 years ago. All right. Um, my observation and comment um, is about the commons. And the except for John Michael, all of you guys don't understand that we live in multitudes of commons, and you're talking about transportation, but it goes over, and we don't think how we manage it. We just let turn people loose on it. And every solution you do when you have a commons involved is going to underperform unless you recognize that this is a common use era. It could be a technology, it could be physical space, it could be land code, it could be healthcare. We, you need to think of everybody using it unrestricted, and then designed for that. Is there a question in there? What was the question? The question is, what do you do to include the commons as part of your decision and design process? Well, the, the easiest thing to do is dynamic lane management through tolling. Mm -hmm. Without using tolling to expand, using tolling for capacity is a path toward bankruptcy. Using tolling to manage uh, demand works really well. Uh, unfortunately, right now we have a very strong coalition between people who see tolls as um, uh, like placing taxation. a burden yeah. on, on, on impoverished citizens and people who see tolls as a communist plot. Mm -hmm. And those, that, that's a very strong coalition right now. It's, it's mind-numbing uh, it, it, <laughs> uh, that, that we've kind of done a whole 180 on, on toll roads. Um, you know, here in Austin, you know, we're, we're not known as being a very conservative place, you know, and we've embraced toll roads here. I mean, they're not without controversy, but they're still building them, um, and they're being used quite a bit. You know, you talk about SH-130. Yes, the southern half was in bankruptcy and had some trouble. That northern half has gone like gang, but they're actually congested. now expanding it. Uh, because it was unfair criticism. Yeah. Uh, but it's one that I hear a lot. Uh, there's, there's another coalition, by the way, that says, look, I'm already paying a ton of taxes. Why isn't that going to the roads? It is. You know, we're paying some of the highest property taxes in the country, and that's where it should be going. And maybe if we're diverting more of our money towards transportation and less to some other things, then we wouldn't have to continue to build more toll lanes. You're right. That was an unfair characterization. <laughs> Great, uh, great panel. Thanks for your comments. My name is Michael Weber. I'm a professor of mechanical engineering here at UT, and I'm also at the Energy Institute. And I, I want to make a, a comment and then get your reaction. Uh, one comment, uh, just a fact that came out from Hurricane Harvey, is about 300 to 500,000 cars were destroyed in what we think must be the single largest incident of automobile destruction in the history of mankind. <laughs> and so that's an opportunity for Houston so to rethink bonkers. its relationship with cars and car culture. So there's an opportunity there, which is there's about to be billions of dollars spent on car replacement, and then we can ask, maybe we don't need to replace all the cars, maybe there's something better. In parallel, we've got research at UT coming out about next week, done in partnership with Oak Ridge National Lab, that compares the cost of personal auto ownership with the cost of mobility services. A typical new car is like $30,000. We use it 4% of the time. This is economically irrational, by the way. We don't do that for most other expensive things in life. Then you add in the cost of the garage, property taxes, fuel, maintenance, air conditioning in the garage, pay to park at work, walking from work, the lost time, that kind of thing. If you add in all those costs, car ownership's actually quite expensive and more expensive than people think. And if you think your time is worth $25 an hour or more, and especially if you think your time is worth $50 an hour or more, then it's usually cheaper to use Uber or Lyft or Chariot or some other surface. Or ride so, Austin. Or ride Austin. There, and you mentioned we've got... <laughs> We've got like 10 options. Most of those options are cheaper for more people than you think, not rural people, 
in maybe urban, you can use mass transit, but there's this other swath that could use micro transit, you, you said, or mass customized transit. So is mobility services an option to ramp that up to get point-to-point -point customized travel? And is there something at the local municipal level, policy level, or other levers that might incentivize it? Or do you think that's a stupid idea? So I'll just stop there. Thank you. It's brilliant. We're doing it. Uh, I, um, there was a lot of smartness in there, but I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I kind of lost the question. But I mean, I, could, would you mind just encapsulating that for me? Just speak loud. As a state, uh, as, a, as a member of the Texas House of Representatives, I, I lament the fact that I don't have more ability. TxDOT is doing the job that we told them to do. They are, they are planning highways. Um, my, my mantra is, why, why can't TxDOT, as it's planning a highway, plan another asset, a, 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 a dedicated lane that's going to go from that interstate to a park and ride, for example, so that people will say yes to transit. Um, Texas is one of 23 states that does not allow that. So, so I, I'm, I, wish, I wish I was the queen of Texas, and I could say, take a little bit day. of money and do something creative. Do I a pilot program. Let's I show people too. that this can work. And we, don't, we can't do that by, by Constitution. Well, one thing that cities can do, which is actually, as we've talked about, probably the most impactful thing, but also can be a, a lever to uh, achieve more investment in mobility as a service and transportation demand management is land use policy, just through zoning. Uh, Austin uh, is in the midst, uh, for the first time in 30 years, of rewriting all of our land development code. And, you know, everybody's fighting about zoning and, and, and density and all that, but there's a lot of other great stuff in, in the code that nobody's talking about. One of them is, hey, if, if I'm building a, an apartment complex or a shopping center or, or an office complex, I'm going to require you to build some degree of, of parking, uh, off-street parking. I can reduce that requirement for you if you are providing mobility as a service to, to, your, to the employees there, if you're buying people a, a transit pass, if you're subsidizing uh, their trips on Ride Austin, if you're, if you're installing a, uh, a bike share station. So we can start to use levers like that to get more institutional and private investment uh, and build the market for mobility as a service uh, uh, you know, throughout the entire city. That's going to take a while. Uh, uh, but And the other thing that we're doing is working directly through employers. We have uh, a transportation management agency that's growing uh, here in Austin. Uh, and we've seen success with that in other communities like Portland and Seattle, et cetera. So again, all the solutions are out there. We just need to, we just need to, to do them and take them to scale. Well, there's also a state level tool that is in severe danger. Um, uh, starting a few years ago, because of an advocacy group in Dallas um, demanding that TxDOT not simply rebuild existing facilities but prove that they still have value to the city. TxDOT implemented a transportation planning program in Dallas called CityMap. And for the first time, TxDOT looked at not just um, automotive transportation outcomes from its projects but also impacts on economic development, housing, and urban design. Um, and that study was delivered to Dallas actually earlier this year. Uh, it took forever to finalize because of some politics. The, um, what it shows is that moving away from capacity building is entirely um, justifiable on a cost-benefit basis. It gives TxDOT a policy reason to say, we're, we're not going to expand this highway. In fact, we have one section of highway that we're examining whether we're going to tear out. Here's why it's in danger. 
The only person still on the commission who's pushing for that kind of planning, that comprehensive approach to planning, is Victor Vandergriff. He's not likely to be on the commission all that much longer. Um, at the end of next month, I'm going to convene a group of municipal uh, elected officials in a group that we're calling Texas Urban Policymakers to m sit down with Commissioner Vandergriff and talk about ways that we can improve our advocacy with both the governor's office and with TxDOT so that I'm not simply cursing the darkness, but I'm actually lighting a light. Thank I'd like to that. also <laughs> mention, Beth, while you're here, maybe you can speak to this, because in, in urban Austin, we have, and suburban Austin in my district, we have some examples of developers who are using the tax credit program. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, to our credit as a country, we are saying you have to locate these things close to transit. But there's a difference between a, um, the price of a real estate that's a quarter mile away versus the price of the real estate that's right there. Mm -hmm. And that means that developer suddenly can't do the project that's right there. But that right there project might be something else. I don't know if you have anything to say about those kind of programs and projects at well, the I mean, federal we, level. Right, right now, the, the policies of the last eight years are probably going to shift a little bit from the policies in the next. Um, but what we have been trying to concentrate on in HUD now is uh, Dr. Carson, Secretary Carson has a vision. He's calling them an envision centers. And he's looking at areas of town that historically have gone um, underutilized and trying to figure out how to use things like transportation to get people where they need to go. Um, it's not answering your questions about how to involve developers, but it's the, it's the private-public partnerships that are going to make these things either successful or not. We will always have about this much need, and we're always going to have about that much money. So the only way to be able to fill in that gap is looking at private corporations and, and helping to, one, incentivize them, but two, to be less risk-averse. And, and three, quite honestly, to be easier to work with as, a, as an agency. It, anybody who's looked at some of the programs that HUD has had in the past, it, it's, it is a tough agency to work with at times. And so what we're trying to do is go through all the bureaucracy and figure out where we can, where we can cut those. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to have public-private partnerships. And you're going to have to have jobs is the key. People want to live where they work. But sometimes they can't afford it. And sometimes what's right by where they work is not what they're looking for. And they're willing to forego you know, the, the convenience of being able to be a 12-minute drive from work to be able to have more land or to be able to get out of the city or have better school districts. But, but concentrating on only cities, is it's a myopic way to look at it. The solution has to be looking at the entire state and not just what the cities are focused on. Do we have time for one more, two more? One more. Um, hello. I live in Carrollton, which is a suburb of, um, I live in Denton County, and I'm a student at UT Dallas. And over summer, I went to Florida, and the only way to get from Orlando to Miami is this big turnpike called Florida's Turnpike. Um, round trip from Fl Orlando to Miami and then back was about somewhere between 7 and $12. And my parents, they came here, um, to Dallas in around the uh, 90s, and they've said they've seen more and more toll roads, more and more toll roads. Um, I remember a time before there was a Bush Turnpike, there was a nice soccer field there. I played at it a lot, and I've just seen more and more toll roads. I've seen more, just more toll roads. The HOV lanes in Dallas are gone. Now there's, um, you know, express lanes that are paid for, and I just want to know when is this going to end because we just have to keep paying up over and over again just to go anywhere. Like, from uh, on the Sam Rayburn Tollway, the ramp to I-35 South towards Dallas is free. 
but there's a toll ramp to get onto an interstate when I'm already on a tollway to go on I-35 North? Like, seriously? <laughs> um, and I just want, like, you know, you're, it's, I'm not saying it's y'all. Obviously, you're not administering all the toll roads, but we keep getting nickeled and dimed over and over again. And well, you can blame yeah. us. Some of us actually do. When, when we have those things come to a city, you actually have to have, as a city, your city council has to vote on whether or not to allow a toll win. So you're right to yell at some of us. <laughs> I'm a volunteer. I don't want to get ejected. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no easy answer to your question. Um, I, I, the, the, the issue now is where, what are you doing with the taxpayer money that comes in? And there was a time not that long ago, a decade ago, when those dollars that were being put into TxDOT were being diverted. And in fact, the, the money that was going in, the diversions were more than 50%. Um, and now we've swung the other way. Any money that goes into there can only be spent on this. There needs to be a happy medium where we can utilize as many tools as possible. Tollways were one of those, those tools that we did not have the money at the time, so how do we get it? Well, you're going to have to get private businesses, and some of them are, to come in to be able to afford it. And we looked, and I'm not going to say we because I, I'm not a big fan of toll roads at all, but there is an argument to be made that it's, it's user pays. You don't have to go on the toll road. You have an opportunity that if you want to take an extra 30 minutes to get to work every day, you know, you can do that. At least it's, it's more of a user-focused fee. But there has to be a time when we're not just looking at toll roads. That, you know, money that gets put into the system has to be spent on that and recognizing you're already paying tax dollars.